bow with me, please? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son. Today we celebrate the first Sunday of the Advent. And uh, Lord, we just want so badly uh, this December to focus in on what it means for you to have sent your Son, the salvation it brought, the joy it brought, the life change it brought. The world changed and forever changed that day. And we just to give you all praise and glory. Help us to learn more about this uh, transformation that you want to bring into our lives. Lord, it's transformation. If we don't know you, then we need transformation. If we know you, we still need transformation. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that we would uh, just lean into everything that we can learn about you this Christmas season and walk away into this new year a little bit more chiseled into the image of Jesus. And for his sake we pray. Amen. All right. I'm sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> I was so excited about that first song. Um, so, uh, just a, a welcome, and be sure that uh, you, you fill out one of these uh, connection cards. If you're a visitor with us today, we'd love to know who you are. And we've got prayer cards, uh, too, to fill out. We'll be faithful to, to pray for you. One uh, announcement, please, uh, in that for opening promo, please forgive us. We forgot to tell you that at 5.30, the very opening thing that's going to happen is our preschool choir will be singing. And you will want to... You will want to see those boys and girls. They've got some great songs. And then following that, uh, we've got our, our first, through se- first through sixth grade uh, choir uh, doing a Christmas musical. So you'll definitely want to be involved in tonight. All right. I think I've covered everything. Um, so let's continue in our Advent Christmas celebration. It came upon the midnight clear. Yeah. 
with us. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee Israel's strength and consolation hope of all the earth thou art dear desire of every nation joy of every longing heart amen we're going to ask uh, todd and kate sublet to come up and lead us in our advent reading witness of the New Testament is that the King of glory, the Son of God, became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament promised that he would come, and the New Testament testifies that he came. Thus, at the very outset of his gospel, John stated his thesis that the Word is the eternal God of the ages who came in human flesh. John 1.1 affirms that Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent, and co-substantial, of the same substance with the Father. Jesus pre-existed with the Father in eternity past. May the truth drive us to our knees in worship as we embrace Peter's empathetic testimony as our own. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 1, 14 through 18. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, John 12, 41. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body 
have you prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord God most high, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your love and faithfulness, for sending your Son, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was promised to us and who is ever interceding for us. We thank you and glorify you, and we praise you this time of year and throughout the year, and help us to honor you and to show it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. As we think about the gift God gave, let's think about the gifts that we give in tithes and offerings. Let me remind you that we have a Lottie Moon or a international missions goal, and uh, we have met it many, many, many years in a row, and we do not want 2022 to be uh, anything other than uh, another uh, goal-setting year. So please uh, give generously to international missions. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and uh, we thank you for this first Advent reading that reminded us that the Word became flesh. And uh, still today, Lord, you are Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And uh, we look forward to our teaching today, Lord. May we learn from you. Uh, May we, again, just uh, be transformed a little bit more into the image of Jesus today as we learn and and follow your Word. Uh, Lord, we ask you to bless this offering. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so far, we have uh, sang songs that are basically pre-New Testament, pre-incarnate. Let's fast forward a little bit and go post-New Testament. Let's go with what we know now. We know, like unlike what they did before the New Testament, that Christ is the Messiah, that He did come and has come and is coming again. Amen? And this song says this so beautifully, Jesus, Messiah. The whole earth trembled, the veil was torn. 
Praise you, Lord. Amen. Amen. thrills my heart to see a choir singing. You just, we don't realize how rare it is to come to church nowadays and, and hear uh, choral arrangements and singing from a choir. And I'm so thankful for Brother David and our choir, the work they put in, uh, bringing glory to the Lord and helping all of us with our affections moved to the glory of the Lord. Well, we're going to talk about Christmas grace for a few Sundays, and today's subtitle is The Glory of the Son of God. Seven centuries ago, a Christmas carol that we often sing today was written in Latin, and the title was With Sweet Shouting. How many of you ever heard of that song? You haven't, right? The great composer Bach took that song and he arranged it to be played by the organ. And then, a few years later, a fellow by the name of John Mason Neal standardized it into English, an English hymn. And the English title was changed to Good Christian Men Rejoice. So it went from with sweet shouting to Good Christian men rejoice. You ever heard that song? Raise your hand. You have? Well, the first stanza tells us what every Christian should understand at this time of year, the time of season we call Christmas. 
It says, good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give you heed to what we say. Jesus Christ was born today. Ox and ass before him bow. He is in a manger now. Christ is born today. Hey, Christ is born today. I like that song, don't y'all? The second verse, I'm not going to sing it again. I'm about out of voice nowadays. But it says this, not... The first one kind of tells you the reason for the season. The second one really gets to the heart of why we rejoice as good Christian men and women. And here's what it says. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now you hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He has opened the heavenly door. And man is blessed forevermore. Now, I've done some construction And we know this, but a door opens both ways. It's an exit. It's an entrance. I want you to know that the reason you can go to glory in heaven today is because Christ Jesus stepped out of that door. The reason we rejoice is because he opened the heavenly door. A door. He stepped out of heaven so that we can walk in to heaven. And this is exactly what we learn in our thematic verse for the Advent season. So I want you to memorize this one, okay? Do a test next week. See if you've memorized it. Turn your Bibles. Turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's a, a really easy one for you to remember, I think. But we're going to build upon this particular verse. And today we're going to deal with the glory of the Son of God. How so? I'll show you in the text. It tells us why good Christian men rejoice, why good Christian women rejoice. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, again, context is important, and this is in the context of giving, and we need to give, don't we? We need to be obedient in that area, and Paul would build upon the Macedonian churches who gave out of their poverty and much affliction. They still had joy, unlike some Baptists, when we give, we kind of give it begrudgingly, we kind of... But here, here are the Macedonian, here's the Macedonian church who had very little, they were poor, And yet they gave out of their affliction, and they did so with joy. And so Paul is building upon that. And then in verse 7, But as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What is that act of grace? Giving. See that you excel in that act of giving. So in that context... Paul presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of becoming poor in order to enrich others. Now, I don't believe in health and wealth at all. And these nutcases will take those verses or this verse and tell you, oh, that's, the, that's how God designed it for you to, he died so that you might be rich and you can give to others so that they might be rich materially. Well, they haven't read their Bibles Neither do they understand what the true riches are that we have in Christ Jesus. So this was not a command to be obeyed. 
Paul says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. You know, folks, real giving is because we love Jesus. That's why we give. He doesn't give it as a command. He says this so that we'll take the opportunity to demonstrate our genuineness of our own love and our own diligence to the Lord. However, for our purposes, we get to see a verse that is a Christmas lens for us. To really stop and view Christmas the way it should be. So Paul will drop first for us a strong verb. For you know. Know. Gnosis. Knowledge. For you know this, the grace of God. Mental perception, we should all think about this today, is followed by a massive prepositional phrase. For your sake. Let that sink in. Yet notice this for today. For your sake he became poor. The grammar is like this. For your sake, he became poor, being rich. Okay? He was already rich. He has this wealth that is present even within his poverty. Now, this is, I know deep grammatically, but this is what it's saying. The riches of Christ hidden in his poverty are the riches that make the Corinthians rich. Here is what it means. Jesus underwent his incarnation. Becoming, his becoming poor. In spite of his position in heaven, already being rich, in order that we might be saved. That is justification through Jesus' death, meaning we are becoming rich in grace and mercy and righteousness throughout and through his poverty. Unless, in case you may lean upon the health and wealth understanding of this verse, shame on you. But let me show you a couple of verses that bring strength to that. Romans 10, 12. Don't turn, just listen. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Chapter 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And we know this is the gospel moving to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're already in 2 Corinthians verse 10. Chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10. The Bible says, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. I thought if you were rich, you possessed everything. But in reality, Paul says, I don't have anything, but I have everything. And what that actually is, is the forgiveness of sins. It's justification. It's riches this world cannot offer you. It's your position in Christ. We'll unpack that a little later. So this is not, here, here's the question. What was his position in heaven? He, being rich... He became poor. So we have to stop and ask ourselves the question when, when Christmas rolls around every year. What was his position? What was, his, what was this wealth? Well, I'll tell you it wasn't earthly wealth. It was his eternal wealth. You really can't appreciate the son given or the child born in Bethlehem until you realize that before he was ever born in Bethlehem, he was the king on his throne. Before he came to earth, he sat in splendor. On a great throne. As we'll see today while shining burning ones hung upon every word that he said. 
The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 verse 6, another great and awesome Christmas text, says that he is, behold, he's the child born, but he's the son given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and he shall be called the Prince of Peace, the mighty God. That's who he is. He's the mighty God. This was the creator God who was born in Bethlehem. He's the ancient of days, given in Micah 5.2. He is the pre-existent, co-eternal, co-effulgent Son of God. You understand there's never been a time when He did not exist. The Son of God could point to the hundreds of billions of galaxies. The hundreds of billions of stars. He could point to the sun He could point to the moon, to every square foot on planet earth. He could point to every person who has ever lived in the history of the world and say, mine. That's who he is. But this universe stretched from one side to the other is nothing compared to the wealth that our God truly has. He has everything. How do you measure the worth of heaven? How how do you do that? How do you measure the worth of omnipotence when you can do all things because you are all powerful? How do you measure? Well, in omnipotence, he's got the power to execute his plan without fail. Can any of you do that? You couldn't even hardly get ready to come to church this morning on your own. But yet our God has a plan and he's got the power to execute it. How do you measure omniscience where you know everything? From the beginning, from the end to the beginning. How about omnipresence where you can be everywhere all the time? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the unrivaled king. He's the king of glory. When you see the word glory, you have to think about the excellencies of the wealth of God. You think of his character. So there's been a few times when people caught a glimpse of that, right? Of the glory of the Lord. We think about the Shekinah glory of God coming down on Mount Sinai. We think about, whoo, if you touch the hem of the mountain, you're dead. We think of Nadab and Abihu, right? If that ark starts tipping over, I'm just going to tell you now, don't touch it. And Aaron's sons die. And Aaron's like, you know, as a father, what would you think? Well, this is cruel. This is tough. Moses says, I'm just telling you now, you got to take our God serious. So we we think about the glory of God. In Revelation 4, 1 through 2, the Apostle John has an extraordinary invitation from the Lord God Almighty to ascend from earth to heaven through a doorway into the heavenly realms. And he sees things that are invisible and overwhelming. And as John passes through that doorway, the first thing he sees is someone seated on a throne. Isn't that awesome? That throne and the one seated on it are the central reality of the entire universe. For God created the universe. He owns it. He actively rules it. That throne is the very thing that sinners rebelled against. Are y'all listening? And it is reconciliation with that throne where we find salvation. Isaiah had a similar vision at the beginning of his service as a prophet. And this vision will actually enhance and And move Isaiah to say everything else in his book that he's going to say. And in this particular passage, the Lord God allows Isaiah to see the Son of God high and lifted up. It convicts him. 
He purifies him, and then he uses him for his service. And I think this passage alone, and this is the one I've chosen, and there are many ones that we could put our concentrations on to think about though he was rich. I think this passage helps us see the glory of the Son of God more than any passage in the Bible. Okay? So turn to Isaiah 6, and we're going to exalt the Son of God for his glory. And there's really two overarching things that I think Isaiah 6 should do to us. It should pull you in to worship the Son of God like never before, but it also should help you see your need for salvation, atonement, and redemption. Okay? Listen, uh, well, Miss Kate, uh, they, they read that verse to you already. Okay? The sublets did for us. A little later down, I will add a couple of verses to that, but not to read it again. There's something we learn about Christ surrounding the death of Isaiah. I think this is why Isaiah makes this connection. Kings, even those who reigned for 52 years, for him to start off like he did in the year that King Uzziah died, that, that's, that's unique. And why is he starting off like this? Well, kings, even those who reign 52 years come and go. But yet there is a king on his throne in heaven who has reigned from all eternity to all eternity, and that will never change. And this is, this is what's going on. There were all kinds of socioeconomic upheavals when a king would die, especially when he ruled that long, 52 years Isaiah has this vision of a throne that can never end with someone seated on it whose glory fills the whole earth. And it says, I saw the Lord and it is Adonai. Are y'all with me? Don't get into the Christmas swoon just yet. Okay. This is early December. It feels like everybody's locked in, but he calls him Adonai. And in Hebrew, that really means the sovereign king with authority. In other words, this is emphasizing the absolute lordship of the one who is seated on the throne. It is the word we would use to describe the kingliness of God. So whoever it is that's on this throne is the king of glory. That's who he is. He has absolute power, control, and authority. Get the picture. In the year that Uzziah the king died, I saw the absolute sovereign monarch of monarchs who is upon his throne. Now we know, he says, I saw the Lord, but what did we just hear from the sublets in their reading? No one hath seen him. Right? So how is it that Isaiah said, I saw him, but no one has seen God at any time and lived through it? Not the total essence of who he is. In other words, he's not visible with the human eye, as in his substance. Now we know the Son of God made him visible, amen, with all his grace, but we're not there yet in the fullness of glory. God can, God can, and he does manifest himself visibly. Now, for you theologues in here that have studied the word of God, and you think about these things, it's called a theophany. It is a God appearance, a manifestation. It is a God appearance or a manifestation, but we would really call this one a Christophany. And I'll tell you that in just a few moments and show you where. But this passage says he's sitting on a throne. What do we know about a throne, folks? It emphasizes sovereign rule. Throne is used 40 times in the book of Revelation. Y'all know that our God is going to win in the end. Y'all do know this. And the book 
of Revelation has the throne room of God as central, speaking of his sovereignty. And so the subtle contrast is that no one is sitting on the throne of Uzziah, but Adonijah the Lord is on his throne. I hope you understand this. I need to hear this in our world today, don't you? The Lord is on his throne. He is lofty and exalted according to this text. Why do we have that kind of terminology? Because it's regal language. The train of the robe, here's the real translation, is filling the temple. The length of a train of a king's robe in the ancient world was a direct reflection upon the majesty of the king and his glory. So, for instance, if you had a king with a lot of power and prosperity under his rule, like Uzziah, who was there 52 years, this dude would have a long train. Okay? What can we say about our president? I don't even think a sports coat could cover up his backside. And that may be true for all the presidents we've ever had in our world. But the fact of the matter is, this is an awesome dynamic. Because it's a participle of dynamic action. In other words, this temple, this robe is filling continuously the entire palace or the tabernacle. In other words, there's no end to the train of the robe of the Son of God. His glory is filling the temple. It can mean palace. It can mean temple. Was Uzziah inside of the palace right before the king's throne after he died? I don't know. He could have been in the temple. But what's important is what Isaiah saw. He saw the Lord. He is brought into the heavenly tabernacle or palace room and he sees the majesty of the one upon the throne whose rule never ends. So the Bible at this point says, and this is where I'm transitioning to get you to see he was rich, okay, and why you need grace. There are seraphim above him. Y'all do know that the title is not angel. Could it have been? That's the way we view it, yes, but the literal rendering is burning ones, okay? These these burning ones, it's a descriptive term of what they look like. They're burning ones. They have wings. Your grandmother does it when she goes to heaven, okay? She's a human being that's been redeemed by God, and she'll be in heaven without wings, okay? Please don't write on Facebook when someone dies, my mother got their wings. My mom got her wings. That's not biblical. I have to drop that in every so often. Your mother wasn't an angel when she was on the earth, and she's not an angel in heaven, right? We're all sinners who needed to be saved. But here's the issue. They have wings. With two, they cover their face. Now, catch, get the point. Use some sanctified imagination. Here are these burning ones, these seraphims. We have to say they're kind of angelic beings for no doubt, but there's got to be some kind of holiness about these angels. Otherwise, you will not fall on your face like people do in the Bible when they encounter one. So just think about this for a moment. Yet as they hover over the throne of Adoniah, they're covering their faces. Why? Because of the blazing holiness of the one who was upon the throne, who was too glorious for even an angelic being to behold his glory and his holiness. It's as if they're staring into the sun. You ever done that before? And you can't hardly stand it any longer, so you cover your face or your eyes. They, and then with two, they cover their feet. In all likelihood, it's expressing their humility before God. Why? Well, it speaks of our creatureliness based upon his creatorship and who he is. For instance, 
when God uh, manifests himself through a burning bush that burns yet does not burn up, what does the Lord say to Moses? Take off your shoe. That's what connects you to creatureliness. Your feet, Moses, and your own holy ground right now, so take off your shoes. Well, the foot of man is what is in constant contact with creation. It's a sense. It connects us to creation. The angels have no sin, but in an act of utter humility before the holy God, they cover that part of the body, which so vividly describes the fact that they've been created by God. Right? These are holy angels. Let's call them that. They're not fallen angels, and yet there's not one spot of sin in them, but yet in the presence of the blazing holiness of God, they're covering their faces They're covering their feet. And then the Bible says they're hovering and they're singing a song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his, say it, yeah. You see in the connection of the glory of the Son of God. So, this passage leads us to believe that this is a song that they sing without ceasing. And then when you look over in the book of Revelation, we say, aha, we actually find that this is the song that they sing how often? Day and night. What is striking is that they're not singing love, love, love. They're not singing mercy, 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 which we ought to sing that too, right? They don't sing even good, good, good. They sing holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, it's the word kadosh. So they're trebling that in an antiphonal response all the time. Perhaps they're doing this as some theologians believe because God is a divine trinity. Well, I like that. He is holy, holy, holy. But they didn't have a Trinitarian hymn book like we do. What is the reason for the trebling? Well, you know, in the Hebrew language, you don't have adjectives. So how do you express something without adjectives? Well, you do it by repetition. So Hebrew will pile up words to show emphasis. Did Jesus do this? You better believe it. Truly, truly, I say to you. He does this often. But in this text, it's three times. One commentator says, Our God's holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative has to be invented to express it. And that's what it is. It's a super superlative in the Hebrew language to express something. Folks, it's not enough just to say God is holy. It's not enough just to say the Son of God is holy, holy. you got to say it three times. Just to get it into our minds and thoughts. The early church fathers would remind us that they believed that this expression was about the triune God... I think the emphasis, however, even though that is true, is undeniably on the fact that they're awestruck at who he is. It is trebling holy because I believe that is the most important attribute. And as far as your salvation is concerned, it is no doubt the most important attribute of who he is. So let's ask this question with two aspects of holiness. What does it mean? First, there's the aspect of transcendence. That's the primary meaning of holy. It, is, it means to be separate. Unless y'all hadn't figured this out, God is not like you. He is holy other. And he is separate from us. The first thing holiness means is that God is not like you and me. The gap between us and our God is of infinite proportions. In Psalm 50, 
David will chastise the people of Israel because they thought God was altogether like mankind. And God says, I tell you what I'll do. I'll drag you into court and I will prove to you that I am not like you right before your face. We're not talking about man in his fallen condition. Even so, even though man is an image bearer of God, we would even have to remind ourselves that there are, we do have some communicable attributes that have been given to us. We know how to love, and, and we know something about goodness, and we know something about these things. But folks, I want you to know there are some incommunicable attributes that you will never have that God has. Because he is wholly other. These attributes belong to God. They make him totally other than us. We should spend some time meditating on how infinitely far we are from God and how little we really know of our God. Our assumption in the U.S. is a familiarity with God that is a major problem with evangelicalism. A major problem. A.W. Tozer captured this point well in a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's what he says. We must not think of God as the highest in ascending order of beings. Don't we think about that sometime? You know, caterpillar down here. I don't want to hurt your feelings. Cat and dog down here, right? Some people don't see that that way. But then you move up in ascending order and you get to the cherub. And then the next step up, archangel, and you get up there to God. Here's what Tozer said. We must not think of God as the highest in ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up from the fish to the bird to the animal to the man to the angel to the cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is finite. But the gulf that separates us from God, or while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. If God is holy other than us, folks, we have only scratched the surface to figure out what his essence really is. Eternity will not even be able to expound on the holiness and grandeur of our God. We will never be able to exhaust his divine being. The God who created this immense, vast universe that is seated in this, on this throne in Isaiah 6 is the very God that got off that throne and came down to this earth. Are y'all getting this? That's why I'm laboring for you to see this. Yet even then, there's a side of him we've never seen. He's God. He's infinite in his holiness. It should blow our minds every time we're able to bow our heads and pray and say, Father. It should blow your minds to think of the entrance and the access that we enjoy to a God like this, who is absolutely holy. So that's the one part of it. He's different from us. He's holy. But there's another aspect, and it's usually the one that comes to your mind when you think of holy, and that is the fact that God is separate from sin and or impurity, right? Y'all with me? Here's what Habakkuk 1.13 says. God's eyes are too pure even to look upon evil. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness, and it's a, a double negative. Absolutely not any darkness at all in God. The Bible says that you and I will not come to the light because we have a love affair with darkness. And yet, here is the Lord Almighty with no darkness at all. Now think about this. This is the attribute 
of God that we sinners most need to understand and be transformed by at Christmas time. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven. But notice here at the end of verse 4. Listen to the word. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, the whole earth is full of his glory. How do you translate glory, folks? Have you ever struggled with that one like I have? Well, theologians talk about there's this transcendent glory, there's essential glory, and how, how do you put these two together? Well, the essential glory is basically the essence of God's own being, which no one has ever seen and lived. Only the Son of God has revealed that to us. There is, however, a sense of a declared glory of God where we see God working in the world. We know what's happened in the Old Testament. The glory of God in his awesome perfections and attributes have been lived out all the way from Sinai and the crossing of the Red Sea and Miracle after miracle is, in a sense, the glory of God being displayed upon the earth. When the angels say, the whole earth is full of his glory, what they are saying is that throughout the entire earth, in created order, there is a reflection of our God's attributes. There is a reflection of our God's character. But Paul makes clear in Romans 1.20 that our cre- the creation is still yearning for something in the future. Y'all get this? I will be ecstatic. When his glory fills the entire universe completely. Right? Not just some of his attributes that we see. But there's coming a day. But Paul says that creation reveals the existence and attributes of God. But sadly in verse 25 it says that we exchange that glory for creation. And and worship the creature more than the creator. Right? That's what Romans says to us. So the world is already filled with his glory right now, but we became idolaters. According to the Bible, Habakkuk 2.14 predicts that someday the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory like waters covering the entire sea. Unless you hadn't figured that out, that's at the second coming, right? That's coming in the future. When the redeemed walk in resurrection bodies. I don't know what y'all think about that, but mine's falling apart every single day. You say, well, you're just 52. You have no idea. I know. But I feel it at 52, okay? One of these days, we'll walk around in resurrection bodies. Resurrection bodies. In a perfect universe, as the Bible would tell us, radiant only with the glory of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the light. That's a prediction, right? That's going to be fulfilled. But I'll tell you, God is not satisfied with the way his glory fills the earth right now, but God's going to change that in the future. Amen? So this is what they're singing. They're singing, holy, holy, holy. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory, God's awesome holiness. It is so awesome that the angels begin to praise God for his holiness, for his majesty, and even inanimate objects move. It's filled with smoke, but something else is happening. Thresholds of the temple are moving. This is incredible. We learn from Psalms that in his presence the mountains melt like wax. We know from the word of God in Habakkuk 3 that inanimate creation trembles in the presence of Almighty God. Then we see smoke filling the temple or the palace. Same grammatical structure about the train. So this smoke is continually filling the palace. Fire and smoke, folks, represent the terror of our God. Now get with me. 
It's kind of like we're going to have a children's pageant tonight, right? Pageant, play, singing, right? Don't you love kids when they do those things? You never know what to expect. Even, especially, I feel that, especially <laughs> when it comes to the preschoolers. What are they going to do when they get up there? We're like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good, right? There's one little kid that was in a Christmas play, and he had a line in the play where he was supposed to say, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. With all the hustle and bustle and trying to learn, he just forgot his lines. And at the last moment, he says this, and forgive us our Christmases. All right, wait a minute. As we forgive those who Christmas against us. (laughs) Did he not say more than he did before? You know, maybe we're missing it. So I'm trying to get you, do we need to apologize for the Christmases we have to our neighbors? Right? I'm trying to get you to think about this. When holiness confronts man's sin, something must happen. Are y'all with me? This is what happens when sinful creation comes in contact with the holiness of God. Are you ready? And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Ah, the Lord of glory, right? So this is what happens when sinful creation comes in contact with the holiness of God. We've forgotten about this in our world, folks. We've forgotten that God is holy. We must not treat our God lightly. There should be sobriety. There should be seriousness when we approach the Lord. Is it it mixed with great joy? You better believe it is. But he is holy. And here is what we need to take with us into this Christmas season. The only attribute that is revealed in the word of God, unlike any other attribute given to us in the scripture, is the holiness of God. This is why there should be a seriousness in the way that we worship, in the way that we pray before a holy God. This chapter calls us in Isaiah 6 to heavenly worship of the glorious Christ, to match the seraphim and their awe-filled cries before the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy. I would encourage all of us in attendance today, look at your own heart. Let's all look at our own actions. See if we indeed are treating our God as holy. All right, verse 5. Are you, are you thinking with me? I'm going to land the plane. It's, it's, I know it's landing gear's coming out. All right, here we go, coming down. Listen. Though he was rich. You got it? I hope you do from Isaiah 6. Though he was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. This is the only remedy for what happens when a holy king of glory comes in contact with unholy and sinful people. This is the only option in the entire universe. No one goes to heaven without expiation and propitiation. You said, preacher, you're throwing those big words around. Well, propitiation is in the Bible. I'm sorry. About five times in the New Testament. We'll read one of them, okay? Expiation is another one, but here they are. When I see the blood... I will say it loud. Pass over. You understand that all this is connected back to Exodus 12, all right? When I see the blood, that's the covering. Doorpost, lintel. When I see it, that means your sin is covered. That's expiation, the covering or the removal of sin. That's not enough. 
The wrath of God against your sin has to be removed too. That's called propitiation. God will turn away his wrath from you when he sees righteousness. Guess what? You don't have any. You have none. So therefore, there's not a half a hallelujah chance for you to ever go to heaven based on what you do. You've got to have a mediator. You've got to have someone to atone for your sins. The removal of sin, the appeasement of God's wrath through Jesus Christ. One awesome surprise of Isaiah 6 comes when we read about what John has to say. And the sublets read that to us. He identifies the one upon the throne as the Lord Jesus Christ. After citing Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, same text we were in, to explain to the Jews why they were rejecting Christ despite his miracles, in John 12, G- John 12 says these astonishing words. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Who did he see? He saw the Son of God on his throne in all of his glory. John speaks of the one who performed the miracles before their eyes, but they would not believe in him. Verse 42 speaks of many who did believe in him, but were unable to confess him freely because if they did so in the synagogue, they were kicked out. So John 12 is speaking of Jesus, the king of glory, seated on his throne, high and exalted, the one who the seraphim cannot see fully, and they veil their faces before the glory of God. That is the son of God, the king of glory, the mystery The mystery of the incarnation. Here it is. Jesus of Nazareth is the God of heaven and earth. The creator of the fiery archangels. And of the lowly lowly caterpillar as well. He's the one who crafted and shaped the mountains. Who spread the stars out throughout space. This is the one whose blood provides the only remedy for you to be saved. Are y'all connecting the dots? He's the only one. that There is no salvation in this world apart from the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the atonement that he made for us. Period. There is no salvation apart from it. Isaiah cried out, woe is me. I'm ruined. Ooh, listen to this. I'm getting excited. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. Ooh, that he had taken from the altar. Touched my mouth. And said, behold, this has touched your lips. Listen to this, folks. This is Christmas. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Folks, this is a foreshadowing. The hot tongs of the altar taking that coal. is nothing less than what Christ the Lord would do for you on Calvary. Give himself as an expiation. Give himself as a... Propitiation. When the publican hits himself in his chest, the other is saying, Oh, I'm just so glad I'm not like this cat right here to my right. You know that story? And the publican's hitting his chest and he says, God have mercy. You know what that word is? Be propitiated to me. God, turn away your wrath from me. That's what I need. I need my sins atoned for. So this coal taken from the altar, no doubt, foreshadows Christ and his purifying ministry. The glory of Jesus is infinite. And folks, it will radiate throughout the new heaven and new earth. Isaiah wrote about him so that we could see the glory of Christ and in faith turn and be healed. So not only is Isaiah 6 about worship, it's also about the fact that God is holy. 
And we are polluted by our sins. It calls us to understand that atonement, that the only atonement that can ever be for our sins is that which God provides for us through the blood of the Son of God. We have committed cosmic treason against God that is deserving of death and eternal separation. Yet here, not only do we see our sin, but we see the grace and mercy of God reaching out to forgive us of our sins. Making atonement for us. On the cross, God treated Jesus Christ like you should have justly been treated. Yet on this side of the cross, God can now treat us like he treats his own son. I know it's late, but listen. You get to listen to the kids tonight, right? Y'all can make it. All right, Romans 3. Here's what it says. Romans 3, verse 23. Listen close. For all have sinned and fall short of the... Y'all got it? You hearing the sermon? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how are we justified? The Bible says, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a, uh uh-oh, watch out, propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Folks, we fall short of the glory of God. We can never even be in in His presence apart from atonement. Please see what the scripture is reminding us. He he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the final thing. Sinners desperately need the riches of Christ. If you're here this morning and you think that material things is what you need, hear this clearly. That is not your greatest need by far. You need the riches of Christ. Hear it. Though he was rich, he became poor that through his poverty, you might become rich. Sinners desperately need the riches of Christ because we are spiritually destitute. We are poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3. We're beggars with nothing to commend ourselves to God. But through salvation, believers are made heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 17. We share his riches because we're made partakers of his divine nature. The ultimate goal of our salvation is to be made like him. Right? 1 John 3, 1 through 3. To reflect his glory in heaven so that in the ages to come, y'all remember this verse? He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right. One sentence. He was rich. Next week, he became poor. We're going to marvel at his incarnation next week. For for right now, think of the glory of the Son of God. Think of mercy and grace. Folks, there is no atonement apart from Jesus. There's no works that can get you to heaven. You're like that hamster running in that wheel, and you're running, 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 running. You're not getting anywhere. You can't work your way to heaven. By the works of the law will no man ever be justified before God. It's it's Christ only that saves. It's Jesus only who saves. And this is what we think about at Christmas. The glory of the Son of God. In his position before he came down to this world. That's who he is. Let's pray. Father, help us to... Lord, help us to think correctly about Christmas.
Lord, I know the name, even Christmas, is nowhere found in the Bible. Incarnation is, Lord, you coming to this earth, we don't even know the time. It didn't even put a ripple in the clamor of Bethlehem for the most part. But the God of eternity in all his glory stepped out of heaven. What a, what a down-to-earth kind of gospel. That you, as it says in Micah 5, would come to the least of the places like Bethlehem with all of your glory. And in the end, you came to save sinners like us. Father, we're so thankful. We've been blessed. If there's someone here that is lost, Lord Jesus, may they see, get a glimpse of who you are in all of your holiness. And help them see the need for their sins to be forgiven. For them to be atoned for. Removed and your wrath turned away. God help us. Only the righteousness of Jesus given to us can do that. If someone is lost today, they may, may they trust you as Lord and Savior. Trusting Jesus only to be saved. And for Christians, Lord God help us this time of year. This time every week. To think about who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Humbly to the earth you came, born into this world to save. Maybe God revealed to you just during the sermon that he came to save you. Let's sing together. Humbly to the earth you came, born into this world to save. God with us, Emmanuel, now we adore your name, your name is a strong and mighty tower, your name is a shelter like no other, your name, let the nation sing it louder. Cause nothing has the power to save but your name. Sing it again, humbly. And humbly to the earth you came, born into the world to save. God with us in a strong and mighty tower, your name is a shelter like no other, your name, let the nation sing it louder, cause nothing has the power to save, but your name. Am I on? Oh, there you go. We appreciate our sound, folks, don't we? They could turn me off. As a matter of fact, Brother Andy's already threatened several times. Yeah. I'd just be louder, wouldn't I? Yeah. You know, uh, George Whitfield preached in open air to 5,000 people. That's amazing, isn't it? And we wimpy people today have to have all those microphones and stuff. All right. Tonight, we do have our children's program. Please come back. Miss Cindy and all the host of people. 
have worked for that age group and then Miss Jennifer with the younger ones and uh, come back and support that. Um, just blessed. Nat and I want to tell you often, and we don't tell you enough, how much we love our church family. You are a blessing to us. And uh, got through two weddings <laughs> in two weeks. I told Nathan, I said, you got to 16, buddy. <laughs> 16 years old, won't you go ahead and get married? No, I'm kidding. But I will take some money on the offer, right? <laughs> you know, we may need to get back to this betrothal, uh, what do you call that thing? I don't know. Arranged. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. No, God has blessed me with the Hannah and Chloe, bringing them to our family, and we're just, uh, God is good. You know, his grace transforms, Right? He seeks and saves, conceives and calls, chooses and changes. And when that happens and faith responds, it'll change your life. Amen. God is so good. Brother David, come back tonight. David and you, right? (laughs) Jesus Messiah. Let's sing it. Jesus Messiah. Name above all. Name above all names. Sit, Redeem.